Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA as we dig into the Word of God.
So as has already been announced, David Morris is with us this morning, a longtime friend of GCA, and I don't know how many years ago we met, but from our first meeting at Luby's Cafeteria in Franklin all those years ago, David and I just became instant friends, and in this lifetime, you're very, very blessed if you get a few really good friends. And to, to indicate, to demonstrate what a good friend David has been to me, he and DJ Ward officiated my ordination. And then we, on several occasions, have spent entire weeks in a single hotel room together and still didn't kill each other. And that's pretty remarkable. So Tuesday, he is the evening lecturer at the Gladeville Conference, the Embracing the Truth Conference. And then Friday, is that right? So Friday and Tuesday, he will be speaking in Gladeville. So if you get a chance, come out and, and hear him. Now, I will say in advance, because the conference is coming up this week, that I completely and utterly disagree with David Morris's definition of what a lecture is because he will lecture on Tuesday night and just tear the roof off the place. And then I have to get up on Wednesday morning and be the next lecturer. And people are going to be like, can we have David back? <laughs> so, so he has been a really, really good friend to me and to GCA. Steve is going to lead us in the next hymn. And then after that hymn, David will be here. And that is the end of my obligations for this morning. I'm done. <laughs>
Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. I give honor to our great and worthy God, the one who alone is deserving of all praise, all honor, and all glory. And I magnify him, the one to whom worship has been directed this morning in such a blessed way. Give him glory in the trinity of his blessed and sacred persons, the one eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I am so very grateful for the kindness of God and his providence to bless me to be back with you here at Grace Christian Assembly. I missed last year, and uh, I'll tell you, I arrived last night really in need of a Jim McClarty fix. <laughs> and it's so good to renew fellowship with my brother Jim. We're thankful for the privilege of being in his home, and the company that we keep has always been a blessing to me, and I'm grateful for the fellowship of you, my brothers and sisters here, it is good to see each one of you, some of you not as familiar as others to me, but all of you, my brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I am grateful, very grateful again for God's goodness. I trust that you will pray for the conference this week. And Brother Jim was very kind in his comments about my teaching, uh, he's always the one who's the big hit over there, though. Uh, they enjoy him. You see, I have to yell a little louder to cover my content, but he, he's got content, so he, he doesn't have to raise his voice. But we appreciate what God's done in the Embracing the Truth Conference, and we appreciate those whom God brings together. It'll be, I believe, a blessed time. If you can make it, we encourage you to come. We uh, appreciate the privilege of being again with you today. Thank you, Pastor Jim. For those who are listening remotely, we're glad you're here and uh, thankful for the opportunity we have to open God's Word. I want to invite you to turn with me this morning, please, in your copies of God's Word to the book of Genesis, please. And I'd like to read in your hearing the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis, We'll be focusing particularly on one verse in that chapter, but we'll be looking at the chapter to appreciate that verse. And even beyond that chapter, we'll be thinking together about some of what our God gives us in these words of the 15th chapter of the book of beginnings, the seed plot book of the Bible, I like to call it, because it's really out of the seed plot book that so many of the other truths that we appreciate come to start begin with. So, and we'll see that especially today, I believe, as we look at Genesis 15. By way of a title, I'd like to give you this, One Door and Only One. We want to, again, read together Genesis 15. So let's do that. If you'll follow along in your copies of God's Word as I read this portion aloud, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. 
And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, that is Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years, and a she-goat of three years, and a ram of three years, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, an horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance." And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good, buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the river, the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim, and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. We trust our God will add his blessing this morning to his word as we read it and think about it. The words here are words that are so powerful in regard to what God is doing. We read about all the ites there at the end and somehow we might do a little bit of that, you know. When I was in Greek class first year, I may have mentioned to you Dr. Arp, my Greek professor, Kronji Burnsford Arp. C-R-O-N-J-E. I've never met another Kranji in my life. When we would yawn in Greek class, Dr. Arp would look at us and go, ah, you bore me too. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that when we read the word of God and we feel bored by it, we ought to hear the Lord saying to us, ah, you bore me too. Not exactly. You get my point though. Those parts of the Bible that sometimes seem to be boring to us, God has a message, and I believe that's so true here in Genesis 15. As I give you a title this morning, Genesis 15, I give you one door and only one. And I do so because of the fact that it's often asserted about some, by others, that uh, they believe in two different ways of salvation. I think if someone were to label me and your pastor, uh, they would label us dispensational. I really don't care for the handle. I kind of like your pastor's words about his hermeneutical approach to Scripture. A face value hermeneutic. I like that because basically it's saying what I think we should all agree about, about reading the Word of God and understanding. And that is when you read the Scriptures, 
your first effort should always be to take them at their face value. As someone has said, David Cooper, I believe it was, he said, when the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. And that's just good reasoning to look at how the text of Scripture should be dealt with. So, so I don't care as much about the categories, but often it's asserted when you do that, that you believe in two ways of salvation. And uh, that's not at all the case. We, 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 we don't embrace any kind of view like that. Whatever some may have written that's been misunderstood, we believe that there is indeed when it comes to salvation in both Testaments, throughout the various ages of redemptive history, we believe there's one door and only one by which men are saved. There's only one way of salvation, only one way by which the grace of God is known. And here in these words, brothers and sisters, we have in Genesis 15 that statement that really gives to us, nails it down for us. Because in the book of Romans chapter 4, in the, that great doctrinal book that Paul writes, he'll quote Genesis 15, 6, the words that we particularly want to focus on, to give to us that presentation of how God saves sinners, of how God justifies sinners, or to use the Anglo-Saxon counterpart, of how God rightwises sinners, puts them in the right way when they're in the wrong way. And as we think about that, I, I want us to give attention then particularly to chapter 15, verse 6 of this portion that we've read. But in doing so, I I want us to consider a little more widely the chapter and maybe, maybe even some beyond that. But uh, we read scripture and I didn't pray and I like to do that. So may we just together again bow before our God to ask his blessing on his word. Father, we bow before you in the name of him whose worship we have sung. How grateful we are for the Lord Jesus, Father. We're grateful for his precious blood that is the perfect plea for every sinner who comes to thee. Father, we're grateful that we can sing, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Father, we bless you this morning for thy worthy son. And we ask in our time together around your word that you would glorify him that by thy spirit you would do that which would magnify the Lord Jesus in our lives and as well lead us to love him more and to walk with him, to worship him, to serve him more in this life, to live in obedience and honor to him. And Father, I pray that you would so work through your word that not only would you do that for us who know you, But should there be those listening, either here or remotely, Father, that you would, by your spirit, through your word, bring them to see the worthiness, the loveliness of Christ. And that, Father, those who know him not might be driven to say, I must have him. And by your grace through faith, may they come to rest in repentance and faith on your son. In his name we ask it. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we look again at these words, and particularly I lift before you Genesis 15, 6. And as we do, I'll I'll read it again in your hearing, and I'll insert a little bit just in case the he, the uh, third person plural, uh, excuse me, third person singular. I was going to convince you that I had some education, but I just botched that, didn't I? (laughs) The the third person singular pronoun, he, uh, just in case it might not have uh, the sense of a referent, let me 
read it a little more fully. And he, <coughs> excuse me, that is Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, counted to him, Abram, for righteousness. Here we have in these words of Genesis 15, 6, a presentation of how it is that God brings sinners into right standing with himself. And the words as we find them in this opening book of the Bible, this seed plot book of the Bible, these words are instructive because they bring to us Long before the law is given, they bring to us long before there's any sense of a system of works by which people would say, well, that's it. That's how it's done. Long before that, God gives us this man, Abram, who is brought from his land Ur of the Chaldees by way of Haran, comes into the land of promise. He's given special promises by God, and it's all on the ground of what God does by grace. That shouldn't surprise us because it's been that way before this. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, we read, Noah found grace in the eyes, excuse me, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I, I like what one brother said. I heard about a brother who was preaching those words up in uh, Chicago area. And uh, as he was preaching, and he said, and I wish I could do it like he does, did it, but he said, uh, they tell us that the Hebrew language doesn't read like our English language from, from left to right. It reads from right to left. So if we want to understand those words, Noah found grace, maybe we should read them right to left. Grace found Noah. And that's what that idiom in Hebrew means. It doesn't mean Noah was out looking for grace and found it. No, it really means that grace found Noah. And that's the reality of how God saves sinners. The work that he does is by his grace. And that grace brings people to faith. And by that faith, righteousness becomes theirs. And that's what Genesis 15, 6 is telling us about this figure, Abram. Now, the way it is in the, in the Hebrew text, the sixth verse is not in the, uh, <clears throat> grammatically, it's not in the order of the text. It's somewhat out of order because in some measure, Abram doesn't start believing here. Abram has been believing for a while as God called him. But it's reinforced here because of the nature of what God is doing in this chapter relative to his promise to Abram. For we see here a promise about seed or about children. We see here a promise about land, which God is specifically covenanted with Abram. And so God's going to speak of that here in these words of Genesis 15. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I, I want to, as we look at this verse, I want us to first of all think about the faith of Abram. The faith of Abram or the fact that Abram believed. And uh, I will, in this portion, like to think about what is it to believe? Ask you to consider that with me. Abram believed. He believed in the Lord. When we think about faith, it's told one time that a Sunday school teacher asked her classroom of boys, what is faith? And one of them piped up and said, faith's believing something you know ain't so. <laughs> and for a lot of people, that's what faith is. It's believing something you know ain't so. They think in terms of, and especially in our modern world, now it's postmodern, they tell us. I don't know. I don't think there's much difference. But, but in, in, in the world, the basic approach to faith is 
Faith is something you have no certainty of. Instead of the the hard facts of what we know in science and used to be history, now that's become very suspect. But but the hard facts, uh, that's a different world from the world of faith and of religion and all of that. And and so that little boy's boy's, uh, definition for many people works. Faith is believing something you know it ain't ain't so. But for the writer of scripture here, the word believe has a, a radically different idea. The root of the Hebrew word for believe is is Amon. And we get our word amen from that. If any of you know what amen means, it's basically so be it. Or somebody said, yes, that's what amen means. And, and that's that word aman that is the root, the source of the word amen. And what's interesting is I had the privilege of talking a little bit with Brother Steve before service about Hebrew. And we were talking about how Hebrew is a, a language that's a different animal from English and our related languages. Uh, it's it, 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 it has a, a verb that basically has two tenses he mentioned, and that's the perfect and imperfect. And uh, please don't unplug right now, okay, because I'm going somewhere with this. And, and it has, though, basically a root. So often it's a three-letter root, three consonants, and, and, and they build around that with various forms of the stem, different verb forms. Now, the, the word aman in Hebrew, that word we have for believe here that we get amen from, that word has the idea of to be steady, to be stable, to be firm. But, but in the stem of the word believe here, it's in what we call a, a hefil stem. I hope I haven't lost you yet. But the idea of that word hefil is a causative sense in most cases. In other words, uh, if we could think about it in English, If I fall, that's something that happens to me. But if I fell a tree, I make it fall. That's the idea of the hefil in in Hebrew. Uh, It's causative in character. If I sit, I sit myself down. But if I take a flower vase and put it on a table, I set it. I make it sit. I make it rest there. Those kind of examples can help us understand what's going on with the the hefil. For instance, if I hear something in Hebrew, that's that basic sense. If I do it in the hefil, I'm making someone hear or announcing to them. I could give you other examples, but that's the idea of the word. Well, here the word believe is in that stem, the causative stem. But there's a problem here because the causative sense doesn't work. If aman means to be faithful, excuse me, to be steady and can mean faithful, to be stable, to be faithful, then the hefil causative sense won't work here. Because if you take it that way, it's going to mean in effect, and he made the Lord steady or stable or firm. That won't work, will it? The man can't do that. So in the case of this word to believe here, there's what we would call an estimative or declarative sense. In other words, Abram looked at the Lord who's promising here and he said, he is steady. He is firm. He is stable. He is faithful. Brothers and sisters, we've already sung that this morning. My faith has found what? 
a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. You see, as God's people, we have come to an understanding that faith is something that looks at the living God who makes promises. God has given us promises. And what do we know? We know that he is faithful. We know that he's firm. We know that he's steady. We know that he's stable. And that, brothers and sisters, is what faith does. Faith looks at the God who has spoken, the only God that is, the only God that created, the only God that made the worlds. It looks at him and he says, yes, right on to what he says. That's so. And that's that estimative or declarative sense of the word that is used here of what Abram did. He believed God. Now, brothers and sisters, one of the best illustrations I can give you of it is found over in the words of Hebrews chapter 11. It's not used about Abram there. It's used about Abram's wife, Sarah. And in the words of verse 11 of Hebrews 11, we read this. After Abraham's faith has been spoken of and he's been joined with Isaac and Jacob in that. And it'll be mentioned again after verse 11 concerning these uh, who believed God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who lived as pilgrims. In verse 11 of Hebrews 11, we find this. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Notice that last phrase in Hebrews 11, 11 about Sarah's faith. She judged him faithful who had promised. That, if you will, is what that stem of if they have filled believed is saying back in Genesis 15, 6. God counted him faithful who had promised. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we have said about our God. He is trustworthy. He's faithful. He's steady. Now, there's so many ways we sing about that. We're going to sing another hymn later on, Lord willing, about the solid rock. And we're going to sing as we sing that, God willing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And that, brothers and sisters, is what faith affirms. It's declarative that speaks of God in his Faithfulness, God and His firmness, God and His fixity, God and His steadfastness, God and His stability, God in that which marks Him as the one who is really the only proper object of faith. Think about something this past week that was my privilege to do. Went with my wife to see a play put on by a family who homeschooled with us back in days past. And we knew some of the people who were acting. It was the Titanic. And uh, of course they mentioned as people were boarding there the Astors and they mentioned several other famous wealthy families of the day. And you know I can imagine that with those people's wealth they felt nothing Nothing, nothing can shake me or rock my life or my world. By the end of that voyage, though, something had happened. There's only one firm object of faith, and that's the living God. Amen. Nothing else. And, and, and that's where Abram is 
putting his faith. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But again, we ask, what is faith? It's not believing something you know ain't so. No, it's knowing that the God who is spoken in Holy Scripture is firm and reliable and steady. And you can with confidence rest your faith in him. Let's move on, though, to look further at the words of Genesis 15 and to think together, brothers and sisters, about the object of Abram's faith. What did Abram believe? And it says there in the words of Genesis 6, he believed in the Lord. And the way it's worded so and as understood in the Hebrew text by those who understand Hebrew better than I, it's basically an affirmation of the totality of God's being. Sometimes this word believe is used with regard to a specific statement of somebody. For instance, if uh, someone who's not honest says something, you might believe that statement but not endorse their character. But the words here speak of the fact that there's an endorsement of God's whole character by by the preposition that's used in the Hebrew text. It speaks of the fact that there is a there's a realization of the total dependability of the Lord. And in that, brothers and sisters, we see Abram looking to the person of the living God. If you'll notice in the words of verse 6, it's the word Lord with all caps. Our King James has that. If you're reading uh, any other version other than the King James, and I kid sometimes with you that some of you haven't heard the language of Zion in a while, so I come and read the good old 1611, right? Uh, I say that tongue firmly planted in cheek. Uh, but, but most of our English versions will have Lord here as all capital letters. If you'll notice earlier in the words of verse 2, where Abram addresses the Lord, he's, and we read, And Abram said, Lord God. Notice God's in all caps there. Capital G, capital O, capital D. In both cases where you have all caps for Lord or God, in the Hebrew Old Testament, that represents the covenantal name of God, which we call Yahweh or Jehovah in English, transliterating it from the Hebrew. And we don't know exactly how to do that because the consonants aren't really known. But it represents that I am that I am name of God that he revealed in Exodus 3 to Moses in the burning bush. You remember when Moses is God speaking to him, telling him to go down to Egypt. As God's doing that, Moses says, when the children have asked me, the children of Israel asked me, who, who sent you? What's his name? What shall I tell them? You remember what God said in Exodus 3.14? I am that I am. Tell them the I am has sent me. Oh, I like that. Uh, the, the I am. You see, you and I can't say I am that I am or I am because I am. He's able to say I am because I am. Amen. You and I are all dependent creatures. He's the independent, self-sufficient, self-sustaining God. And that's the word that is used here when it's translated in all caps, Lord, or all caps, God. We we find this name, and it speaks of the fact that uh, Brother Ward, whom Brother Jim has mentioned in relation to his ordination, and many of you did know him. Some of you may not have met him, had that privilege. But Brother Ward used to talk about God in his isness. (laughs) You won't find that in Webster, by the way. But it it speaks to the fact that God is marked by being. And I I don't even, I realize that men do this and I'm not going to quibble because they're theologians and I'm not. They talk about the existence of God. I don't even like to talk about his existence. 
I talk about his being. You and I exist. He is. And, and that's, what, that's what Abram is brought to believe about God. That the God who is, the God who can say, I am that I am. He's able to make promises and keep them. So there's, a, there's an endorsement of the person of God here. But there's also something else. For, for Abram is embracing the promise of God. It's that opening conversation that begins the chapter points out. Because you have here, as, as God begins to speak, and it's interesting how God speaks in verse 1 of Genesis 15, because the, the last chapter talked about Abram going out to rescue his nephew Lot when Lot had been captured by the kings of the east, including well, there were four of them, and they came, and five from Sodom and Gomorrah, the area, fought against them, but they lost the battle, and the kings took Lot. When Abram heard that, he got together those born in the house, 318, and then he got together his confederates there in the area of Hebron where he was, and they went out, and they went as far as Dan, and when they got beyond Dan, almost up there to Damascus, around Hobah, they fought the army of the kings, and they beat them, and they got Lot back. They got the spoil back. They got everybody back. And when the king of Sodom met Abram coming back, he said, I want to give you the spoil. You take that. And Abram said, I'm not going to take a shoelace. I'm not going to take a sandal thong from you lest you say I've made Abram rich. And in the very next chapter, the first verse, God says, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. You refuse the king of Sodom's bounty. I'm your reward, Abram. And I'm as well your protector, your shield. Don't you fear. But that leads Abram to ask a question. Lord, what will you give me seeing I go childless? Lord, you've promised me a seed. And the one who's the heir of my house is the servant, Eliezer of Damascus. What are you going to do? And God said, let's go outside a minute, Abram. Look at the stars. Count them. If you can, that's how much your seed will be. Somebody who's going to come from your loins is going to be your child, going to be your heir. And Abram, when he heard God, he, amen, Lord, you're going to do it. So there's not only the idea of God's person, but God's promise, a promise about a child, a, a promise about a seed. And that's an important concept because this seed business in the Bible has a supernatural character to it. You go back to Genesis 3.15 and God speaks to the evil one, remember, after our first parents had fallen into sin. After Mrs. Adam, she wasn't Eve yet. She becomes Eve after the fall. When they, Adam calls her the mother of all living, calls her Hava in Hebrew. I didn't say it quite right because you really got to your throat on that first hit. But, but he calls her living because, brothers and sisters, he was embracing God's promise. What was that promise? God told the evil one in the hearing, the earshot of our parents, I will put enmity. Hostility between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And God was talking there about a seed. But did you notice what kind of seed it was? Supernatural seed. Just like this seed. Just like the other seed. Why? Because God said the seed of the woman. Now, brothers and sisters, biologically and biblically, 
the woman doesn't have a seed. Biologically and biblically, the man has the seed. But God's not talking about a natural or human element here. God's talking about a supernatural work. And ultimately, the preeminent seed of the woman, Christ Jesus came, born what? Of a virgin womb. No human seed passed to the womb of Mary as God brought him forth. As the angel Gabriel uh, announced to Mary and Mary asked in, in wonder, how shall this be seen? I know not a man. And he said, the power of the high shall overshadow thee. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So this promise embraces a seed, a seed which is supernatural in character. A seed which has got to be by the work of God. Because you see, later in chapter 16, right after this, interesting. We see our own weakness in faith, don't we, brothers and sisters? I sure do. Things may be different in Tennessee from North Carolina, but I don't think so. I see my weakness. And sure enough, Abrams is seen in chapter 16. Because Sarai goes to Abram and says, you know, God must want me to have that child by means of Hagar. And Ishmael's born. And that wasn't God's answer. Why? Because that was a natural, a child born after the flesh, not after the promise, Paul will later say. This promise speaks of a seed which ultimately points ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul will tell us in Galatians chapter 3. As God made promise to Abraham and to his seed. If you will, there's a uniplural character to that, to that seed there. It speaks of the one and the many and the many and the one. And I can't unpack all of that for you today. But it's a beautiful thought as we look through the word of God. And how it's threaded through the whole of scripture. As we consider the seed that God promised. And brothers and sisters, against the background of that antecedent theology of Genesis 3.15 about the seed. And as we follow it ahead and God continues to narrow that seed and he goes from Abraham to Isaac and then from Isaac to Jacob and then from Jacob to Judah and then from Judah to David. You see the the narrowing of that seed that ultimately becomes the promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah will pick it up and speak about him in the book of Emmanuel. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And there'll be that continued focus on the coming promised one. And Abram embraces that promise. It says, amen to the gospel as it was given to him. He may not have seen all that you and I saw. He may not have known all the characters of it. But I think God preached more of it than a lot of people today think he did. And we'll see that in Genesis 15 at the trust today as well. And brothers and sisters, as we see that seed emphasized, and I'll mention another element that's also emphasized in this chapter, and that is the land. This promise of God isn't some somewhere way out there promise. It is very tangible. It's got some substance to it that is this worldly. And brothers, sisters, that promise of land didn't stop 2,000 years ago. 
there's a reality to it that we believe one day God is going to bring to pass for his people Israel, Abraham's seed. And with that, I say amen like your pastor does. God's going to do it. And that's one of the focuses as well of what God will do. And brothers and sisters, if you will, I I say ultimately it's a harbinger of a new earth. Something you and I can't fully conceive of, but God is unpacking his plan to do something new with what has happened to the old. And it starts here in the seed plot book of the Bible. Now, as to Abraham believing... The object of faith that Abraham believed, the person of God, the God who had promised, the promise of God, it makes all the difference. You see, today, it's sad in our world because of this idea of faith not having any teeth, you know. You just see signs around believe, right? How many of you have seen those posters and signs? Believe! And you'll even hear songs, just believe, you know. But the problem is... You don't believe something. It's not right. I remember years ago, Charles Schultz, he had a, in his Peanuts comic strip, he had a picture of Charlie Brown walking home with his head hung down, his baseball glove at his side. And the caption read, I can't believe we lost. We were so sincere. (laughs) And, and, And that's what most folk believe today. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just be sincere. That's a lie. It does matter what you believe. If I go to the medicine cabinet and I believe I've got aspirin, I've got strychnine, that poison may still kill me. My sincerity won't alter the reality of the facts. And so there is a reality here with regard to faith. Faith has to have the right object. Let's suppose there are two people There's a ravine at us here with torrent underneath and we've got a log that's going across that ravine and we've got another log that's going across that ravine and on this side that log is rotten and on the other side that log is firm and stout and strong. At the log that's rotten there's a man who says I'm going to cross this ravine. I'm going to get to the other side. I'm going to go. I've got faith. I've got so much faith that I've got faith in my faith in my faith. You've heard some of those, haven't you? But brothers and sisters, all that man is going to do is get wet because the object of his faith, a rotten timber, will not support him. Let's say the other person, they're saying, Oh, I don't know if I'll make it. I don't know, my faith's so weak. I just, you know. And he starts across that log. It ain't going to be his faith that gets him across. It's going to be the log that gets him across. And brothers and sisters, that's the importance of having the right object. And that's what Abram had, the right object of faith. I remember years ago, we lived up on the Susquehanna River there. Really twice, but, but more closely when we lived up in Liverpool back in the 99 to 2003 they tell the story of how sometimes the Susquehanna would freeze. And there was a man who was going to go across the Susquehanna River when it was in freezing during the winter. And, and, and he was scared, though. And so he started out on his elbows and on his knees crossing because he was afraid it might collapse. And, and he was going across. 
And as he made his way and got out a little distance, he heard behind him a stagecoach. He could hear the whip as the horses were being pressed on. And he looked behind him, and there that stagecoach with horses and wagon rode across that frozen lake. And brothers and sisters, our God's reliable. Our God's dependable. You might be weak in faith, but that doesn't mean he's weak to carry you. Take heart. Take heart when you're leaning on him and you feel like you're about to give way. It's not you that holds you up. It's he who holds you up. And that, brothers and sisters, is the difference. Let me move on, though, quickly, because I want to certainly let you out before 4 (laughs) o'clock. Let's ask, what was the result of Abram's faith? We've asked concerning the faith of Abraham. We pointed that out. What is it to believe? We've thought about the object of Abram's faith. What did Abram believe? God's person, but also God's promise, the seed, the land, what God had spoken of. But then I want you to think with me about the outcome of Abram's faith. What was the result of Abram's faith? And here the Bible's clear. Genesis 15, 6 says plainly, And he, that is Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. This matter of righteousness is vital because God is righteous. When we think about righteousness in terms of how the Bible defines it, I I like to think about it in terms of grade school. I've had some education, you see. You remember your suffixes? N-E-S-S. That's the suffix that means state of being. I knew I could impress you. (laughs) You want to think about righteous, just knock the E-O-U-S off. What is righteousness? It's the state of being right, which is a problem for us as sinners because we aren't right. Every one of us have done wrong before the living God. Every one of us stand guilty. That's what Romans 3 tells us, that all the world become guilty, that every mouth be stopped. When it comes to righteousness, God, who is perfectly righteous in himself, fully righteous in all that he does because he pursues his own glory in all that he does, his demand for me is that I be righteous too. His demand for me is that I measure up to his standard, and yet I've sinned and come short of his glory. So so his own person reflects his righteousness. His demand of us reflects his righteousness. But we've all missed that. We can't measure up. But there's a third understanding of righteousness the Bible speaks of, and that is the gift of righteousness. What God is and what he demands, God gives to sinners. And that's what God does here for Abram. God gives to Abram a righteousness which he could not produce, a righteousness which God will accept, a righteousness that is characteristic of God himself. And that's that's the kind of righteousness we need. You see, sadly, a lot of times when it comes to our righteousness, we're like our first parents when they found out they were naked, or if you're from the deep south, naked. You remember what they did when they found out they were naked? They sewed together fig leaves and made aprons. 
Now, brothers and sisters, I want to be perfectly honest, candid with you today. I have never worn fig leaves. I, I don't care if they're dry. I don't care if they're green. You, you, can, you can sell them whatever way you want to. You won't sell them to me. But that's what they put on. Why? Because the deluded mind deceived by sin doesn't realize what God requires. Mr. Watts wrote about it so well in one of his gospel hymns. Ye perishing and naked poor who work with mighty pains to weave a garment of your own that will not hide your stains. Come naked and adorn your souls with robes prepared by God, wrought by the labors of his son and died in his own blood. And remember what God gave our first parents after he announced the gospel in Genesis 3.15. And they, Adam, Adam said, her name's Java because she's going to be the mother of all living. It's through her the seed's going to come. What did God do? Gave them skins. I'd much rather wear skins than fig leaves, wouldn't you? And that's what they had on. Why? Because that's suitable apparel before God. And what was required for them to have skins? There had to be the death of a substitute, right? The death of an innocent victim. God was preaching the gospel. And you see, the righteousness God gives is an apparel that God will accept. Mr. Toplady caught it so well in Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears no forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. File I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, that's the good news. And brothers and sisters, that brings me to my last point. We've talked about the outcome of Abram's faith, and it's seen throughout the Word of God, especially in this seed plot book of the Bible. Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Hebrews 11 will tell us the same thing. But we want to think about the basis of that outcome. On what ground was Abram given righteousness? And while... The words of Genesis 15 may not be as explicit or clear as to how that happened as we might like. They're clear. You see, there are several answers given as to how Abram was made righteous. The first would be the one that some would believe honors God's sovereignty. Well, God just wanted it that way. Well, it is true God wanted it that way, but that wouldn't be enough. That might honor his sovereignty, but it doesn't honor his justice. Because if God does it, it's got to be right and it's got to glorify him. And for God to give to sinners a righteousness without honoring his own righteousness would be for him to really deny himself. To not validate his own character as righteous. So, so that won't do. But, but, but another answer is, this is one that Catholicism would present. Well, Abram's faith merited it. In other words, there was merit in Abram's faith so that God gave righteousness. But brothers and sisters, I remind you already, Abram's faith was weak. Abram's faith was not perfect. Uh, the next chapter 
Sarai convinces him that Hagar's the way to get that promised child. Abram lied about his wife twice. She's my sister. Well, she was his half-sister, but that didn't make it right. She was his wife. You know, in other words, brothers and sisters, Abram's faith was weak. So God's not going to take a, a faith that's imperfect to give people the righteousness that is perfect. Another view is that God stepped down from the plane of demanding perfection by works to accepting faith in its place. Some call it neonomianism, a new law, a law of faith. But that still doesn't satisfy God's righteousness. On what ground was Abram given righteousness? And I believe Genesis 15 provides the answer by what God tells Abram to do after Abram said to believe. And if if you look at it, it, God says to Abram, verse 9, And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now notice, as Abram's instructed by God to do this, notice what we read in verse 10. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. In other words, he took that three-year-old heifer, he took that three-year-old she-goat, and he took that three-year-old ram, and he cut them in half. But he didn't divide the birds. And then he set the halves over against one another. It's interesting how the Hebrew reads there. Each man to his fellow, his neighbor. He set them over against one another. Why did he do that? How did Abram know to do that? All God did was said, take these. He knew that because that's the way a covenant was enacted in those days. You see, what people would do when they entered into a covenant, we would call it a contract. Well, now it's easy for us. They just say, sign your John Hancock, right? But in that day, they would split an animal in half, and then the parties of the covenant would go through the animal has. And what it was was in effect a curse saying, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do in this covenant, may what's happened to these animals happen to me. It was a maledictory oath, basically. A curse. Now, it's significant that even in the book of Jeremiah, we read about this. You don't need to turn there with me, but in Jeremiah chapter 34... Notice the words that we read in the day of Jeremiah that the king of Israel had led the people to do in order to reaffirm their allegiance to God. They basically renewed the covenant. And in Jeremiah 34, God says this in verse 18. Listen to the words. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in twain or in two and passed between the parts thereof. The princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land, which passed between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and their dead bodies shall be for meat unto the fowls of the heaven and to the beasts of the earth. In other words, in the day of Jeremiah, they'd renewed the covenant. How'd they do it? In that very formal way of cutting the animal, the calf in half. And then they walked through and they didn't keep what they said they would do. God said, a curse, judgment will befall you. 
Now that's the same setting that's found in Genesis 15 with this difference. After Abram does that and the fowls come down as it's getting toward evening and the birds, you know, I guess the vultures showed up. Abram shooed them away. He scared them away. And then he fell into a deep sleep. A horror of darkness passed him and God revealed what was going to happen as Israel would go down to Egypt and then come out with great wealth. And then in the words of verse 17 of Genesis 15, we read this. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. And the idea of the word made in Hebrew in verse 18 is cut, karath. God, they cut a covenant. Why? Because the animals were literally cut in half. And, and what happened in the case of Jeremiah 34 didn't happen in the case of Genesis 15. Whereas the king and the people went through the animal parts saying, we'll do our part. Abram doesn't do that. Instead, brothers and sisters, Abram's on the sidelines in a deep sleep. And brothers and sisters, he's not a sleepwalker. <laughs> But he sees what? A smoking furnace and a burning lamp pass through those parts. What were those? Those were symbols of God's presence. And what was God doing? God was coming down and saying, Abram, I am going to keep this covenant. I'm going to do it unilaterally. I'm going to do it without your aid. Because if it depended on you, you would fall under the curse. In effect, God was committing himself to say, I will bear the curse. The curse that sin has brought, I will bear on your behalf so that blessing can come to you and to the nations. And oh, brothers and sisters, that's the gospel right there. That's God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. God bearing our penalty. God taking to himself the curse that I deserve. The curse that should have sucked me down to hell. The lake of fire forever under God's wrath. But hallelujah, I'm free. Why? Well, I can say in the words of Mr. Spafford, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to its cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Oh, I'm set free. Why? Because Abram's God, let me say it this way, Abram's God became Abram's seed. Did you hear me? The God of Abram, by a virgin womb became the seed of Abram so that he could do what? Bear the sin of all his people. And I'm not walking through no animal parts right now. I'm not building a bridge. I'm not working my way in. I'm not doing the best I can. Oh, I, I want to do the best I can, but not to get in. I'm doing the best I can because I am in. Well, excuse me, I have to say I'm not doing the best I can, to be honest with you. But I do want to do. You know why I want to do? Because what he has done, 
In other words, the gospel way of salvation, the way of God giving righteousness to sinners is rooted in what God does for the sinner in bearing the curse on the behalf of the sinner. And that should lead every one of us who love him and know him to live more for him, to pour out our souls for him, to walk in obedience to him. As chapter 17, verse 1, God said to Abram, walk before me and be thou perfect. We ought to seek that. Why? Because of what grace has done. And brothers and sisters, I, I remind you of the story told years ago that I believe in some measure illustrates the words of Genesis 15. Two men were having a discussion. One of them was talking about his works with the believing brother. And he said, the believing brother said to him, he said, oh, he said, I, your, your religion has two letters. My religion has four. The man said, what do you mean? He said, well, your religion is a D.O. religion. Do, do. And I think that's a good way to describe D.O. religion, by the way. Do, do, but that's free. <laughs> that's my imbecilic elementary mind. You'll pardon that, I hope. Uh, but our religion, the religion of believers who are looking to Christ, has four letters. D-O-N-E. Done is the work that saves once and forever done. And that, brothers and sisters, is what Abram believed. And God showed to him God himself become man. Abram's God become Abram's seed, bearing our sin debt and our hell penalty at the tree. May we now who know him go out and walk with him and walk before him. Those who might be listening this morning, whether here or remotely, if you've not trusted him, I would say to you this morning, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Amen. Let's sing the solid rock.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.